Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 152. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Ma'akino, our Father, our King. Lord, we thank you that uh, you've given us the opportunity to meet together with one another, to share our thoughts and our concerns with each other as we pray for one another and uh, continue to um, build one another up in the Lord, even though we're separated across the miles. Um, We ask that you'll be with us during tonight's study. Help us to have a heart to know you and to do your will, to uh, seek your face and to honor you in all that we do and to continue to uh, reach out to one another with messianic sympathy and with love and compassion and uh, just have a, a, a good spirit of fellowship with each other. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. My name is Arabin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunvat and Thornton Congregation, uh, Thornton, uh, Colorado. I'd like to uh, welcome everyone who's joining me week after week, especially during these live internet studies via YouTube and via Skype and via uh, my podcast that get uploaded to, I, to, uh, to the iTunes store. And we meet um, every week. I'll give you some more announcements, everything. Just if you are in the Denver, Colorado area, just north of Denver is Thornton, the Harvest Congregation is available for uh, Saturday services. We are still meeting. No uh, lockdowns or anything going on just yet. But if you can't make it, if you, or if you don't live in Colorado, then um, join us online at the Harvest's website, craftedin.com, as you can see on my screen right now. And um, as usual, Mark is going through uh, sermons, and I think he's in a series right now, Bringing Hope to a Hopeless World, Part 2. If you can uh, catch the video that we upload to YouTube, that would be great. Speaking of uh, websites, I've got my own Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com. Let me spell it out for you. It's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. If you can join me online, I don't have a congregation connected to this website. This is my own personal Torah teaching website. You can see from the uh, homepage all the resources that I make available for you right there. Just click on a link. It'll take you into the teaching. Most of the commentaries are written format, um, but a lot of my commentaries are turning into YouTube videos or podcasts or something like that. So, speaking of YouTube videos, find me online at the YouTube channel that I have for my website. Uh, my own personal YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries, all spelled out. And um, you can see from the uh, from the page that I've got pulled up, I've got quite a bit of um, 
content available for you. I'm uploading something every day. Uh, in fact, that's why it says up, updated daily. So um, uh, there are long videos, short videos. Um, right now we're going through two main series. Uh, the live internet studies itself is broken up into two segments, which I'll talk about here in a second. And so if you look at the thumbnails, most of them look very similar as they're following those particular series. And if you hit my um, YouTube channel, do these five things for me. Number one, subscribe to my channel. Join the family. Number two, hit the little bell for notifications so that you know when I'm uploading new content on a daily basis. Number three, um, hit thumbs up and tell me that you like my content. That that helps my algorithm, helps me sort higher in the YouTube channel sort um, so that I can get my videos out in front of more people. Number four, leave me comments and tell me what you like or don't like, what you dislike, what you agree with, what you disagree with, um, what you'd like to see. Uh, I go through the comments as often as I can. I can't always respond to them timely because um, there's only one guy running this show here. So, but um, uh, tell me what you think and I'll see what I can do about uh, responding to as quick as I can. And then lastly, there's usually a little arrow when you're watching a YouTube video that lets you share the content like it's pointing off to the right. Hit that arrow and share the content with your other social media contacts and let them know, hey, there's this really cool channel out there that I've been watching and he's got some really neat content and I think you'll like it. So that would really, really help me out as well. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. And let me tell you what the details are in case you're interested in joining us. This is week episode number 152. And we meet every Saturday afternoon. Today is August 21st, 2021 in the USA date time. Saturday afternoon from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. is the meeting time if you're interested in joining us and you have the time. We go through an hour-long study two 30-minute segments. Segment one is given over to Romans 14 Unplugged Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my, part 68. And we're specifically talking about food lately. We're going through uh, some kind of semi-technical discussions on some of the Greek terms, uh, Hebraic understanding of those terms, and we're interacting with Paul's thoughts on where he says, I'm convinced that nothing is unclean in itself. And we're challenging ourselves with this idea that, was Paul a Torah keeper? Did he really mean that he doesn't really interpret anything as unclean. The pork is not unclean. Shrimp is not unclean anymore. Nothing's unclean in and of itself. Meaning, is everything really out now open to uh, consumption by God's people, especially Jewish people? Or did he perhaps mean something slightly different? Um, and do some of the Greek terms that he used uh, indicate maybe a different technical way of, of understanding what he was talking about? We're going through that right now, so I hope you can join us. Segment two of the study is given over to the apologetics of exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. It's a, um, it's a, um, uh, a topic on the oneness of God, the threeness of God, discussions on different Trinity theories. Um, it's a little bit of philosophizing, um, so there's a little bit of philosophy thrown in there. But uh, for the most part, we're trying to stay true to uh, what the text says, and at the end of the day, Whatever the Bible says, God or who God is, that's what we need to accept. No matter how challenging or mysterious it might be, at the end of the day, that's what we do. Um, and then we've got a video that we're going to watch uh, near the end. This one's a little longer. It's a 10-minute video. Uh, it's from my short question, short answer live series. And the question is so long, I had to, to uh, shorten it. What did Paul mean in Ephesians 2.15 that abolishing the law of commandments or something like that? It's, it's a video based on that particular verse in Ephesians, and we'll watch that later on tonight as well. 
These are the live studies brought to you week after week via Skype. If you'd like to join us every week on Saturday afternoons, go to my website at tatesaytorah.com, scroll to the very, very top and click on that yellow banner that talks about the live internet studies. That'll take you to this page. Scroll halfway down the page and you'll see the blue Skype banner. If you click on that Skype link banner and it's the time for the study, It'll join you with the study right then there through your browser and no other work needed. So hope you guys can join us week after week for the Skype studies. But if you do go to my website, at least do me this favor. Scroll to the very bottom of the web page where you see that black section and some Hebrew writing. And take a look at that little yellow donate button. And I always ask if the Lord is laying it on your heart to share financially with me. If you've got some surplus and um, you got a, you know, your money's burning a hole in your pocket and you don't know what to do with it, well, then I'll tell you what, I could use the help right now. And this is a way that you can do it. So you can donate securely using this particular mechanism on my website. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's jump right into Romans 14, Unplugged. Feasts and fasts and food. Oh, my. And let's just drop all the way down. Um, we've been working our way through this uh, section about talking about... I should have had these bookmarked earlier. I apologize. About talking about... Um, the verses where uh, Paul says, uh, I'm convinced that nothing is unclean in and of itself. So uh, let me find it here. There we go. That's what we want. And um, let me make that just a little bigger. So we've got a set of verses here, particularly one verse, really, that kind of jumps off the page for us. Let me read the verse for you in English and in Greek, and then we'll jump right into the commentary. Romans 14, verse 14, the main verse that's in question, is right here. The ESV renders it this way. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Over on the right side of the page, we have the Greek. This is the SBLG and T version of the Greek. There are different versions of the Greek out there, and sometimes your version might be rooted in an older manuscript, and sometimes it may be rooted in maybe a newer manuscript. And based on that, sometimes you'll end up with slightly different wording. Um, the SBLG and T typically will show if there's a variant. A variance between the two, and it'll it'll put something in brackets if it's if there's a difference between the two manuscripts. But in this case, this particular verse doesn't seem to indicate any variance. So I think this is similar wording across both general major manuscript families. And the Greek says of verse 14, Oida kai pepesmai in kurio yesu hati udin koinan di hiautu a me to lagizamino the word that I want you to pay attention to, at least from the Greek, is this word koinon, which is right there. I've highlighted it on my screen. It shows up three times. One, two, three. And this is the um, Greek of the English word unclean that shows up also three times. And what we've learned is that in the New Testament, particularly using Greek, there are a few different words that could be used in somewhat synonymous fashion to, in, to indicate the idea of either unclean or unholy or unsanctioned or, or common or something like that. And um, there's two Greek words that we're interested in primarily. And so um, here's what we learned over the last, say, maybe two weeks in a semi-technical fashion. Let me just show you these slides that I prepared. And these showed up in my studies uh, uh, over the last few weeks. Basically, what we did is 
In an effort to appreciate what Paul's writing, we compared what Paul wrote in Romans 14.14 with something that Peter said in Acts 10.14. And so if you look on my screen, I've got the King James Bible pulled up right now, and I'm comparing it to King James, and I'm comparing two verses. And in Acts 10.14 out of the King James, Peter says, uh, or uh, Luke writes about Peter's speech, to God. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then we have that compared to the verse that I just read in in uh, Romans 14, 14 uh, from Paul. And if you can see on my screen, I've got the little highlights. I've got a red highlight around the word common in Acts 10, 14. And then I've got an arrow pointing to the word unclean. And then in the King James of, of Romans 14, 14, below it there, you can see I've got the word unclean highlighted uh, uh, three different times. And here's what I have ascertained just by casual observance. This is not something that you have to go to seminary for. This is, this is something anyone can do with a simple uh, concordance tool that will link you back to the original Greek, like a strong concordance or something like that. The Greek word koinos seems to convey man's flexible definition of things, whereas akathertos in the Greek seems to convey God's fixed definitions of similar things. So there are two words that were used by Peter's speech in Acts chapter 10. Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is koinos, that's the English word common, or akathertos, that's the English word unclean. So if you notice, the King James represents common or represents koinos using the English word common, and it represents akathertos as the Greek, as the uh, English as unclean. But that same Bible, as we're going to see, let me jump to the next slide, common in Acts 10.14 is the Greek word koinos, but in Romans 14.14, koinos is translated as unclean. But wait a minute, King James already represented the English unclean, using a different Greek word. Why would they switch over to um, unclean in Romans 14.14? 14, 14? Why wouldn't they stick with the same rendering? According to my understanding, Acts 10.14 already used the English word unclean to translate a different Greek word, which is a kathartos. So, shouldn't Romans 14.14 14 have Paul stating, quote, nothing is common of itself? instead of stating nothing is unclean of itself. Now, why does this matter? Again, going back to that first slide, koinos, and from my survey, I'm not the only one who, who's noticed this particular oddity of English translations. Koinos, if you look at this in other places of the Bible, even going back to the Septuagint version of the Greek, which is a Greek rendering of the Old Testament, even though it was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, we have Greek translation that was available in, in the first century that uh, Greek-speaking Jews could have had access to. And the word koinos seems to be a newer word, a word that was coined by people a little later on in, in Israel's history to refer to otherwise biblically permissible food. God said it was okay to eat it, but because of its questionable um, origins, like, you know, did it come from a, uh, a pagan food supermarket or was it used in an idolatrous ceremony or something like that? Um, you know, literally the word koinos refers to handled by everyone, kind of secular or... Uh, you know, something to that effect. And so um, so something that was otherwise 
okay from God's perspective to eat, meaning it was not one of the forbidden animals, according to Leviticus 11, yet, because of its questionable origins, religious Jews had coined this phrase, koinos, to indicate it's unclean or it's common. The other Greek word that you see in my list here, akathertos, is the word that is used by the Bible, by the Torah, by God himself in several places, particularly in Leviticus, to describe something that God says is off limits for whatever reason or another. Akathertos is God's fixed definition when it comes to food or animals or other things that God says to Israel, this is unclean to you. Don't come in contact with it, if all possible, don't eat it, certainly, um, things like that, don't interact with it, um, and God doesn't always give his reasons why, um, and so it's not, doesn't seem to be open for discussion, it's not a designation, it's not an adjective that man comes along and slaps on something, it's something that God himself says authoritatively, this is unclean. So this is what presents us with a challenge when, we're, when we go back to um, Paul's uh, verse in um, Romans 14, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Is he saying that Leviticus doesn't matter anymore? God said it was unclean in Leviticus, but now Jesus tells me nothing is really unclean in of itself, meaning pork is clean now. Shrimp is clean. You can eat whatever you want. I say, no, that's not the best way to understand the passage, and the Greek itself bears that out. If Paul wanted to convey the idea that nothing is God-designated unclean, he probably would have used the word akathertos in his verse here. But he doesn't say that. Really, it's better if Paul is translated as, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is common in and of itself. Meaning, God says it's okay, but if you feel that the origins are questionable, if you feel that you, you can't eat that in all good conscience, um, even though God says it's okay, then it's okay if you want to come along and say that, mm, no, I've decided not to eat that for whatever reasons. Um, it's common or it's I'm going to designate it as not permissible to eat. And so that's really what Paul's saying. And so that's the force of what we looked at from the technical perspective. Let's jump all the way down into my notes and begin to read the conclusions. And we'll make it through this night. We will finish this section tonight so that we'll be poised for the next section. So, here's what I have to say in my commentary concerning now that we've interacted with these particular technical terms. How has the technical information from my commentary to Acts 10 been helpful at this particular point? When examining Romans 14, 14 firstly, we must admit that the Greek word akathertos is not found in this passage at all. You can do a survey, check this out, make sure I didn't miss something. Generally speaking, akathertos is going to show up all over the place in the Torah, particularly book of Leviticus, when it's talking about clean and unclean animals and things like that. But when we get to the Greek passages that talk about food, the writers of the New Testament don't use this word akathertos to refer to food items that we would be putting in our mouth and animals that we would be um, considering uh, edible and things like that. Akathertos is not the word that they're using. Um, this word does show up in the New Testament, akathertos, but typically it's attached to unclean spirits or something else like that, unclean uh, actions that people do, uh, activities, but it's not attached to food. It's reserved for that designation or animals. It's reserved for that in the Tanakh. So, remember, a uh conveys 
that which is declared by God as unclean. So that's the stronger word that we want to stick to. Now, we're going to work our way towards some practical application because obviously most of you have probably noticed by now, but Ariel, there's no temple around today. There's no tabernacle. This word clean and unclean is really a ritual designation, right? It's not really even something that we interact with on a daily basis, even if we do recognize that certain animals from the biblical definitions are given these adjectives of clean and unclean right? Isn't that word used in the context of ritual um, activities that surrounded Israel's uh, interaction with God at that cultic level? We need a temple, we need sacrifices, we need priests. I would say, yes, Ariel, I mean, yes to you. Yes, you're right. You're right. Thus, clean and unclean really lose some of their force by 21st century modern standards. I mean, no one's going around pointing at food saying, oh, that's unclean. Oh, wait a minute, that's unclean. Rather, we just look at food or look at animals and say either that's on the permissible list or it's prohibited or something like that. So let's work our way towards some practical application. Thus, I say in my commentary, it's safe to say that Shaul is likely not discussing the issue of pork versus lamb when he says nothing is unclean and of itself. He's not really opening up a discussion to say, well, one person says Leviticus is valid, The other person says Leviticus has been uplifted. What really matters is which one of you is just convinced in your own mind. Just have your own opinion about this. Take it up. Have a vote. Just make sure you don't fight. And if one of you thinks the Bible is still relevant when it comes to Moses and Leviticus, that's fine. That's your perspective. God respects you and God loves you. And if the other one of you says that God doesn't, uh, God's words are no longer relevant there, well, then God still loves you there. And if that's your opinion, that's still valid as well. And just make sure you guys aren't fighting about it. I don't think that's the best way for Paul to organize his congregational um, uh, families and groups and to allow them to, for that kind of that vote-based Torah obedience model. That doesn't seem to fit with Paul's um, examples given elsewhere in the New Testament. It doesn't fit with Paul's admonitions given to other Christians and things like that. Uh, in other words, that particular paradigm or logical thought process carried to an extreme would just open the slippery slope up for all kinds of disagreement. Um, You know, it's kind of like in today's um, discussions on, say, um, so-called same-sex so-called marriages, you know, we have some people arguing that love is love no matter who you love, no matter which genders, and then we have other people on the other side saying, no, let's honor what the Bible says in terms of who you can love and who you can join with. Um, if, if Paul were to step in and say, you know, it really doesn't matter what God says. What really matters is how your conscience votes. You know, how do you feel on the matter? If you're convinced that love is, is love no matter who you love, then same-sex marriage, same-sex so-called marriage is fine for you then it's okay. It's not unclean. But for you, pointing to the other guy on the argument, if you think it's unsanctioned and it's unclean and it's unholy, then for you it's unholy. How do we feel if that's Paul's interpretation on that? Hey, you know, we can just go, we can just run that rabbit trail as far as it goes. You see how dangerous it is to allow the apostle to actually be giving us some kind of kind of vote-based Torah um, relevance, uh, you know, vote vote-based biblical injunctions. Is that how we are to run our churches? I think otherwise. Here's what I have to say in my commentary: the word that Shaul, that is Paul, opt for when confessing that quote nothing is unclean in itself, and we have the Greek uden koinon di too, is koinos. 
It's koinos. It's not akathertos. It's not the stronger God-defined word when it comes to which is that which is good and bad, right and wrong, etc., uh, etc. Et it's the lighter man's definition, which comes alongside of God's definition and gives an extra uh, measure of either approval or disapproval on top of what's going on. But it still has no right, the man's definition, still has no right to change God's definitions on what is set in his word. Shaul, I believe, is discussing matters of biblically defined food being declared by one man as okay to consume versus another man declaring it not okay to consume. Meaning, for whatever reason, and this is going to be okay, even from a biblical perspective, we have all sorts of dietary um, perspectives when you talks about believers. Some people are vegetarian. Some people are allergic to certain foods. So for them, they're going to say, this is koinos. This is common. This is, this is off limits uh, in my diet. Um, or I know, um, since I was raised as a Baptist, a, a, an independent fundamental Baptist, which is more of a, a stricter kind of a legalistic type of Baptist, in my opinion now, um, I remember growing up that um, we could eat candy from the store as a Baptist as long as it wasn't around Halloween time. At that time, those same candies could not be purchased if they had a Halloween wrapper on them. And why? It's because the pastor of our Baptist church taught us taught us that candy that's dressed in Halloween wrappers is dedicated to Satan. Now, you might laugh and think, oh, come on, that's silly, right? It's the same candy. But wait a minute, wait a minute. That's his particular halakha. That's his particular group policy and his perspective on the way uh, this same candy was wrapped up. Other days of the year, it was perfectly permissible for me to buy that Snickers bar from my king, local King Supers or Piggly Wiggly or whatever what part of the country you're in. But during Halloween, I couldn't buy that same Snickers bar if it had those um, Halloween pumpkins or Halloween ghosts or you know skeletons on the outside of the wrapper or something like that. It was off limits. It was unclean to me. It was common at that point in time. It's because he, as our pastor, didn't feel it was right to um, participate in any way, shape, or form with Halloween um, um, observances or, or associations or anything like that. And you know, as an adult now looking backwards, I have to respect that. I have to respect that. That's fine. And I think that's wisdom on his part. And now, of course, as an adult, I don't hold to that particular halakha. I eat candy no matter what, what's on the wrapper, per se, uh, as, long as, it's, as long as it really is kosher. And most candy is kosher. It has a little circle K or something like that on. So let's, let's interact with this idea of Paul saying nothing is unclean, nothing is common. Remember, I'm of the impression that Paul's not talking about uprooting the dietary list. I think that instead, Paul recognizes that there are Jews and Gentiles, weak and strong, in the congregation, and that everyone is doing their best to follow what God is asking them to do, but with good conscience, the religious Jews, I, aka the weak in the group, or the unbelieving Jews, or some people say the Messianic Jews, but either way, it boils down to the Jewish um, faction in Paul's letter, they have a problem participating in any type of uh, food intake where it involves food that came from idolatrous ceremonies or um, maybe Gentile uh, markets, um, supermarkets and things like that. And it's because back in the first century, 
uh, food that was sold in the marketplace, particularly Gentile marketplaces, food that was sold and available in those Gentile markets was not all the time, but often, if you look this up in history, often it was um, obtained from previously uh, uh, pagan ceremonies. So um, you had a pagan temple. On the front side of the temple, it was, a, it was the uh, ceremony side where they would do the sacrifices to their pagan gods, cut the animal up and section it off and say their little prayers and do whatever they do, drain the blood or drink the blood, whatever. And then Afterwards, they had so much meat, it was just a waste if they were just going to you know, burn that meat up and get rid of it or throw it out. Instead, they would process it, as it were, and section it off and send it out the backside of that temple as the supermarket. And so the pagan temple had double duty. The front side was more like a temple, and the backside was more like a supermarket or a meat market, a butcher. And then they would sell those meats to the general public. Um, and the people didn't have any problem. Your general average uh, uh, Greco-Roman citizen didn't have a problem purchasing that meat because you know most of uh, Greco-Roman life was um, saturated with paganism anyway. So it was no big deal to eat meat that had been once sacrificed to idols. But religious Jews would have had a lot of issues with that particular meat, even if... It was from an animal that was otherwise on the Leviticus 11 permissible list. So let's say you got a cut of beef. That's God says it's okay to eat meat, right? But that meat was sacrificed to idols, and then it's sold in the in the pagan marketplace. Your religious Jews probably going to come along and say, "No, this is common." off limits. This is the type of sensitive issue that Paul is addressing here in Romans. Because he's speaking to believers who've suddenly been introduced to the idea that paganism in all its forms is unacceptable to God. And if at all possible, if you can avoid any contact with pagan um, ceremonies, then you need to do that. Read through the books of uh, Corinthians, all over 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And if you can avoid food that was offered to idols, well, then do that as well. Certainly, you're prohibited from taking place in the ceremonies, right? Um, as a Christian, as a Gentile. But if you can avoid that food that was um, sold in marketplaces where it's questionable, well then, hey, that's your free to do as well. This is where we pick up the discussion. Here's what I say in my con commentary. Dr. Craig S. Keener, of whom we quoted at the uh, onset of this commentary, he believes that Paul is indeed admonishing his readers to consider at times laying aside rituals and external rules in favor of the true righteousness he has been discussing throughout the letter. So, um, I don't believe Dr. Keener is uh, big on teaching um, Gentile Christians that they should be following after Torah. That's why I said I think he's admonishing readers to, at times, lay aside. In other words, as we're going to find out, I think Dr. Keener's aware that Paul knew that he had Jewish and Gentile sensitivities in his group. And um, because you want to, as a strong Christian, come along and bear with the sensitivities of the weak... Well, then you're gonna you're gonna want to give up some of your own personal privileges and bear with the sensitivities of the other person. This means the strong are going to adopt more of a kosher-based lifestyle, even if their own conscience is going to tell them it's okay to buy food that's sold in the marketplace. So Paul's going to admonish the strong, like himself, to bear with the failings of the weak later on in this particular chapter. So here's what Dr. Um, Keener says in my commentary. Paul's agenda in this chapter is not to denigrate the keeping of these food customs, but 
to keep those who viewed themselves as strong, right, the Gentile Christians, from looking down on the weak, i.e. the Jewish Christians or the Jewish non-Christians. So I think Dr. Keener is trying to express the idea that even if we don't allow for um, Paul to be making some type of distinction about uh, clean and unclean as pertaining to what God designated in the Bible, uh, even if we think that Paul is uprooting Torah, you know, which is the popular view today that Paul uh, set aside Torah observance for, for Gentile Christians. Even if that's the perspective we take, we still have to agree that Paul is telling the strong in his letter, hey, there are people in your congregation that are sensitive to this issue of clean and unclean food as pertains to the Torah, and they may not believe that everything can be eaten. And so, um, you want to be sensitive to them and try not to look down on their particular perspective and don't denigrate their particular food um, choices. So how this would carry over today is even in Christian churches, even if we have the predominant view that we don't have to keep kosher anymore, that we don't have to really separate what's clean and unclean because all of that's kind of been set aside and relaxed, we still need to be aware of the sensitivities of others, the weak that we would consider in our congregation, and we need to practice um, Paul's admonitions here. Let's keep reading Dr. Keener. Paul does not want stumbling blocks placed before those who continue to keep kosher by others eating non-kosher food in front of them. Read verses 13 through 21. So in today's scenarios, let's suppose we had a congregation, a, 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 a general Christian church, and let's suppose they had a potluck and there was generally mostly Gentile Christians at the potluck, no Jewish people with any type of kosher sensitivity going on. I suppose in their particular understanding of, of the New Testament, they would probably be able to bring anything they want to that potluck, right? Ham and shrimp and lobster and, and clams and anything, right? And no one would really have any problems. And under their general understanding of the Bible, there wouldn't really be a problem because there's no offenses taking place. But if, let's say, there were a group of religious Jews who, for whatever reason, I don't know why they would do this, but let's say a, a group of religious Jews, let's say 50 religious Jews decided to visit that church and we would pray that they would, right? I mean, so they could hear the gospel. But let's say 50 religious unsaved Jews decide to visit this particular uh, Christian church and meet with them on a on a, uh, on an oneg, a, a potluck, and get together and just talk and fellowship. Do you think that the pastor of that church has now the right to just serve whatever they want with those 50 religious Jews in the same room? According to my understanding of Paul's instructions here in Romans, I would say no. The pastor should do his homework and do his best to work with the rabbi from from the congregation that those Jews uh, come from and ask them, do you guys have some food sensitivities? We presume that there's probably things you guys wouldn't eat. We don't want to openly offend you, so we're going to make sure we don't serve these things at this particular potluck. That's the right thing to do, according to Apostle Paul, and that's what um, I'm going to say in my commentary here. So I think... Um, most Christians would agree with my assessment, so just follow along and we'll see if um, that's what Dr. Keener says, and I think he is. Although Paul spent much of the letter establishing from Jewish scriptures that God welcomed Gentiles into the covenant, he is now emphasizing his central issue for the Gentile majority among Roman believers, namely 
that they should not look down on Jews, right? Read uh, chapter 11, verses 18 through 21 of Paul's letter here in Romans. Or look down on those who keep the laws, such as here in chapter 14. Remember, according to most scholars' assessment of Romans, much of the... um, uh, Gentile Christian people groups who were interacting with uh, religious Jews in that day, if they're found in synagogue circles, then many of those Gentiles are going to be adopting Jewish um, sensitivities when it comes to these particular issues. So it's likely that um, first century uh, uh, Gentile Christians within Paul's uh, letter, you know, the, the, the congregations that he's writing to, they are also going to be more or less respectful of the Jewish sensitivities uh, if they can, and they should be, and that's because most of us who are any um, vague amount of historians would admit and agree that first century Christianity closely resembled the Jewish counterparts of their religious people that day more so than today's Christian uh, communities do. So first century Christianity was still more, mostly an offset of Judaism is still very closely attached to their synagogue uh, counterparts, uh, closely interacting with them, and that's exactly the way Paul wanted them to do. They, there wasn't this hard break between church and synagogue just yet. So let's keep reading my commentary. We are going to finish this tonight. Um, I go on to say in my commentary, oops, I skipped a section here. Uh, maybe I'll finish this. At least I'll finish this section uh, yeah, I think I'll finish this section and we'll uh, pick this up again next week because I don't want to rush anything. I say in my commentary, Keener's final comments on this section of verses can be observed as stating, and then I've got this section that I'm going to read from Keener, and then we'll, we'll bring this part to a close. Here's what Dr. Keener says. Food is a secondary matter not worth risking anyone's salvation over, right? Read verse 13, 15, and such from Romans here. For Paul, foods are neutral, neither clean nor unclean, right? 14.14. And again, Dr. Keener seems to be expressing the idea that Gentile Christianity has adopted the notion that um, the dietary list has been relaxed, the um, religious ritual aspect of keeping clean and unclean uh, has been set aside uh, by the death of Messiah on the cross. Uh, Jesus fulfilled that part of the law, so we no longer have to concern ourselves. I believe that's Dr. Keener's perspective here. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's what he's trying to say when he says, for Paul, foods are neutral, neither clean nor unclean. Of course, I would disagree if that's the case. I don't think Paul is saying that foods are neither clean nor unclean. I think in terms of, again, if we're talking about biblically permissible food from God's perspective, then yes, food is neutral in terms of whether you choose to eat or not choose to eat, right? Based on whatever halakha you're following. You can you can abstain from food that God says is permissible. God's not forcing you to eat meat if you're a vegetarian, etc., etc. For if you've got a food allergy, God's not going to say, I don't care about your food allergy, you better eat it. No, that's not what God's going to do. So in that respect, foods are, are indeed neutral. But I don't believe Paul would go the extra step and say, food is neither clean or unclean. In other words, Paul's not going to thumb his nose at thumb his nose at Leviticus 11. Let's continue. According to Dr. Keener, Paul is speaking ritually according to Leviticus 11, not equating all food hygienically or nutritionally. So he qualifies his statement there. He goes on to say, the issue is how one views the food, 
right, 14.14, because one must eat, quote, to the Lord, recall 14, verse 6, and uh, compare that from 1 Corinthians 10.31. And that really begins to introduce the greater issue, is um, what you're doing, you're doing unto the Lord, whether you are abstaining from biblically permissible food, or whether you're um, keeping a kosher diet and you're eating that, or whether you're you're a vegetarian or vegan, or you're fasting that day, or um, whatnot, whatever you're doing, you should be doing to the Lord. Dr. Keener reminds us to risk grieving or even destroying another believer over food is to fail to walk in love, recall verse 15, hence to violate the true heart of the law, recall 13, 8 through 10. And I wholeheartedly agree with Dr. Keener's assessment there, particularly when he says destroying. I don't think he's talking Excuse me, I don't think he's talking about losing your salvation or something like that. Paul's talking about um, tearing down, the, the particular Greek word that he uses uh, is not something that would be connected to losing your salvation. Rather, it's talking about um, uh, uh, causing a person to fall out of fellowship with the larger group and putting them in a position where they would um, be kind of uh, out there on their own, uh, outside of, of group fellowship, outside of uh, the, the general uh, grace covering that's provided by the, the, the Messianic group. Uh, that's a kind of, in other words, wounding wounding something, someone to the point that they say, well, I'm just going to leave this church, and then they, they quit going to church altogether. That's the type of destruction that Paul's referencing, if, I, if I'm correct. Dr. Keener continues, what the eater may intend as good, affirming freedom in Christ, may be viewed by others as evil, as disobeying scripture, right? So, uh, religious Jews may say, hey, um, this particular meat was sold in a marketplace, even though God says it's otherwise permissible, but because of its questionable content, our Holocaust is going to tell us that it's off limits, so we're going to restrict ourselves from buying that type of meat and partaking of it. And therefore, because we believe, I'm speaking as a religious Jew in Paul's day, we believe this is what God wants of us, well then you Gentiles would just come along and and flagrantly disregard that particular halakha, that's offensive to us. And so, therefore, we think that what you're doing is evil, and we think it's a disobedience to God's uh, laws. And so you can see how in that scenario, God, uh, Paul's going to come along and tell the uh, strong Christians in private, hey, you know what? It is true what the religious Jews are saying. Ordinarily, you could eat whatever you want, but because they uh, think that um, that food is questionable, it's better if you serve the weak brother and consider his conscience in the matter and abstain from what you would ordinarily find permissible to eat because God says it's permissible. So, in this case, Paul is going to caution the strong, just abstain from the eating in that case because um, if food's going to tear your brother down, well then Paul's going to tell me later on, Paul's going to say this later, later on in another letter, I'd rather just stop eating meat altogether. In fact, he says it in Corinthians. You know, if, if it's going to offend my brother to that particular degree, then I'll just become a vegetarian altogether, right? Which means you don't even have to have the issue of whether or not the meat was sold to marketplace because they weren't using vegetables and pagan services and sacrifices to that same degree. Let's continue. Let's finish with Dr. Keener. He says, Paul applies to Christians who do not observe the law the very critique against strict Jews that they may have earlier applauded, which is, in view of God's judgment, and look at... Uh, chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, as well as chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. They, speaking of the Christians, they must not judge, 
right? Look at verse 13 and verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. They must not judge their Jewish counterparts, nor dare they let what they mean for good cause ill speaking. That is blasphemeo in the, uh, the Greek there. And that's really the heart of the matter as we draw this part, part to a close. Um, we'll pick this up again next week and um, uh, do one more uh, quote here from, uh, from um, Tim Haig. Um, taking kind of a Torah-based look at it there, switching from uh, maybe a predominantly Christian view like Dr. Keener to a Messianic view from, like, say, uh, uh, Tim Haig. But in the end, no matter which way we interpret this passage, the overall message is clear to all of us, and that is practicing a, a stance of deferring to the weaker, um, building the other brother up, um, serving the other brother, no matter if you think uh, you're part of the strong or the weak, Paul's going to admonish the strong to bear with the sensitivities of the weak and to build each other up and not to tear one another down, certainly not to judge one another. And that's going to be the um, what Dr. Keener said is the, the, the true righteous message that Paul is trying to emphasize in this particular part of his letter. Omain? Omain. And that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. What we're doing is um, we're turning to the uh, uh, Trinity study, and we're going to jump right into the final analysis of Dr. Bo Branson, who's a Trinitarian uh, analytic theologian. And he is contrasting Dr. Dale Tuggy's perspective on Trinity. Dr. Dale Tuggy is a Unitarian, a biblical Unitarian. And so we've been talking about these types of Trinity theories. And go back and listen to last week's study, episode number 151, if you're not uh, familiar with um, the topic that I'm talking about. But let's just pick up the study right here in my commentary, and we'll see if we can finish this tonight. Um, and it's not very long. We just have three paragraphs, and, uh, and that's where we're going to stop tonight. So it might be a little bit shorter study. Here's what I have to say. Dr. Branson's final analysis of Dr. Tuggy's Unitarian perspective of the Trinity reveals that in the end, Dr. Tuggy, although highly intelligent and expertly trained in analytic theology and philosophy, nevertheless likely has an invalid understanding of the historical theological landscape from which he draws his own definitions and logical Unitarian versus Trinitarian conclusions. So, what I'm trying to alert us to the fact is that uh, people like Dr. Dale Tuggy, who is a very vocal biblical Unitarian who rejects Trinity, he rejects the idea that there's one God broken up into three persons, he holds to a monotheistic model that resembles some form of Arianism, in my understanding, a kind of a monarchical Trinitarianism, a modalistic monarchianism, I'm sorry, or a dynamic uh, monarchianism, something to that effect, some form of Trinity theory that says, yes, there's God, yes, there's Jesus, yes, there's the Holy Spirit. So that's what he means by Trinity, Dr. Tuggy. But he's going to say that God is one single being and the, that the God of the Bible just is the Father of Jesus and that the Father just is 
the God of the Bible and that they're one and the same self. And there's only one being and he doesn't have three separate persons to contend with. Um, he's one God, one being, and Jesus just is a man. He's a man that was created by God for a special purpose to bring glory to God and to carry the sin of the world, to die for the sins of humanity, and to be uh, raised and exalted and glorified by God in the end. And the Holy Spirit of God is just the spirit of the being known as God, uh, the the impersonal force of God that's used to empower believers to do certain things, etc., etc. So Dr. Tuggy's version of Trinity amounts to what he calls biblical Unitarianism. Remember, the general definition of Trinitarian versus Unitarian is those first few letters. Trinitarian refers to one God, three persons, and Unitarian refers to one God, one person, if you want to describe it that way. So, one God, three persons, one God, one person. That's Trinitarian versus Unitarian. So, Dr. Branson says, when he reads through Dr. Tuggy's definitions of Trinity, Dr. Tuggy makes the error, this is according to Dr. Branson, of misunderstanding the orthodox small o version of Trinity uh, definitions. And so Dr. Tuggy kind of invents his own ver his own nomenclature to describe Trinity, and this has the um, effect of um, disqualifying other versions of Trinity that you and I probably hold to. I say orthodox with a small o because most Christians hold some form of a Trinity model that uh, harkens back to the biblical creeds, the doctrinal creeds um, the, the, that the church fathers put together in the first in the first through fourth centuries or something like that. So, in the words of Dr. Branson himself, let's just finish off with this. Here's what, how he describes Dr. Tuggy's weakness when it comes to understanding um, many models of Trinity. In conclusion, without keeping one eye on history, Tuggy's definitions may initially seem perfectly reasonable. Remember, Dr. Branson holds to this view known as the strong monarchy view. It's a view that believes that the God of the Bible is is uh, better understood as the father of Jesus, but he is the father who is a father by very definition. It's essential to his nature that he's a father, and therefore Jesus the Son can't be a creature. This is according to Dr. Branson. Jesus the Son can't be a creature if God the Father is an eternal father. Indeed, if fatherhood is essential to God's nature and his identity, then, and if fatherhood is eternal, if God's eternal, then the Son must likewise be essential and eternal when it comes to God's nature. Indeed, how could God be a father if he never had a son, if, God, if the Son was invented or created at a certain point in time? So according to the basic logic of Dr. Branson, uh, Jesus is eternal, and was never created, and this is closely linked to the title of God being the Father from eternity past. You understand the logic there? You can't be a father without offspring. And so, Jesus must have existed from eternity past as the Word before he became flesh. That's the general logic of the strong monarchy view that Dr. Branson is um, describing. He continues, but his, speaking of Dr. Tuggies, his substantive arguments really just amount to the biblical case for the strong monarchy view. In other words, Dr. Branson believes that if you really take Dr. Tuggy's definitions and re-examine them, then they're really championing the strong monarchy 
keep in mind that when we're talking about monarchical and monarchy, we have that phrase, that Greek word monarch or monarchy that you can hear in the English word monarchy. We're talking about the question from a philosophical perspective, what or who is the source of everything else, right? Philosophers wrestle with this question as well. Who is the, um, who's the mover, right? When we're talking about the Big Bang, who, who created the substance behind the Big Bang, right? The, the, um, philosophically, we have this discussion called, called the unmoved mover. I think it's either Philo or, or, um, or, or uh, uh, one of his disciples that, that came up with that particular phrase, uh, the unmoved mover. But I think it's either Philo or it might have been uh, one of the others. I can't remember off the top of my head. But we're talking about, from a biblical perspective, who or what is the source of all? And John lets us know that in the beginning was the Word. And Moses already let us know that in the beginning, God created. So we can put those two parts of our Bible together and confidently affirm that in the beginning, God, Elohim, right? He is the source. Well, when we get to the New Testament, we link all of the knock back together with what John teaches us in that passage, that this word which was made flesh, this word was with God in the beginning. In the beginning was Thaos, right? Thaos in the Greek. Uh, we're going to read the uh, in our liturgy from the, uh, the Bible in Greek and in Hebrew. We'll see how this all fits together. So for most of us who are Christians, what I'm trying to say is that the source of everything is God, but specifically, what Dr. Branson would say is, it's okay to put the Father's name in there. We can say that the Father is the source of all. And in in terms of begetting, the Son, even though He's eternally begotten, right, He doesn't have a beginning, meaning He's eternal just like His Father, but nevertheless, He, the Son, issues forth from the Father in this mysterious type of begetting. Even though it's eternal begetting, meaning not created, nevertheless, the source is still the Father, and the result is still the Son. So, in the authoritative sense of the word, the Son uh, is subservient to the Father in that role. And so, Dr. Branson would simply remind us that this refers to the strong monarchy view of God the Father being the source, uh, even though Yeshua is equal with God in terms of creatorship. So, here's what Dr. Branson says. Coupled with definitions, speaking of Dr. Trent, Dr. Tuggy, coupled with definitions that rule out monarchical models of the Trinity, even from even counting as Trinitarian and reclassifying them as Unitarian, this obviously results in a bleak picture for Trinitarianism so defined. So Dr. Tuggy comes along and takes terminology that we um, biblical Trinitarians would otherwise expect and um, recognizes Trinity, and Dr. Tuggy kind of redefines him or repackages him, or uh, this is in the opinion of Dr. Banson, he um, re rewords them so that they uh, become questionable when it comes to Trinity. Here's what Dr. Branson continues with. But when we take a closer look at the actual history of the doctrine 
of the Trinity, right? We go back to history. We, we go back not just to the Bible, but we as Christians also go back to the first, second, third, and fourth, and fifth centuries where we had discussions on the issues of Trinity from the early church fathers, right? The heavy philosophical debates between Unitarians and Trinitarians and Arians and, and all of the other um, types of Trinity models and theories that were floating around during that time period. If we go back to that part of our history as Christians, as Trinitarian Christians, here's what Dr. Branson suggests. The neglected doctrine of the monarchy comes back into focus. In other words, when we ask the question, who or what is the source of all truth and all existence, we come into uh, this discussion of monarchy, well then we come to the conclusion that, that not just God is the monarch, he's the monoarchy, the source of all things, but this same God of the Old Testament is equal to the Father of the New Testament, namely the Father of the Son, and if this Son is eternal, because the, I'm sorry, if the Father is eternal, if fatherhood is something that's essential to God, then sonhood must be something that's essential and eternal to Yeshua as well. And so we begin to bring Trinity back into the discussion. Dr. Branson continues, whether we conclude that monarchical Trinitarianism just is the doctrine of the Trinity, or whether we merely acknowledge that it at le is at least one legitimate form of Trinitarian theology, right? We can go in that direction as well. I know some people are going to say, well, I kind of have a problem just putting all my eggs in, on the basket of monarchical Trinitarianism, right? I don't see God as the single source. Uh, remember, some forms of Trinity focus more on the role of Jesus as the source of all things, something like that. Um, Dr. Branson says, well, either way, in either case, he says, Tuggy's central objection to Trinitarianism loses its force entirely. And that's important because many Trinitarians have a hard time these days articulating their disagreements with biblical Unitarians, especially not able to, say, fight against what seems like basic logic and common sense, right? 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3 versus 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1, or 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1, or however you have your clever math equation to try and represent your basic understanding of Trinity. So, um, in closing, what uh, Dr. Uh, Branson suggests is, he says, in sum, if we look at this debate, and we're talking about philosophical debate between biblical Unitarianism and biblical Trinitarianism, right? However we look at this debate, in philosophical theology, if we look at this from a more historically informed perspective, right, not just pure philosophy, but allow history, keeping in mind that the early church fathers were very much focused on trying to center uh, tr biblical Trinitarianism in uh, what the Bible teaches, not just what philosophy teaches. If we look at that perspective, the landscape of the debate today changes drastically. In other words, Dr. Branson is a firm champion of believing that um, the early church fathers were biblical Trinitarians, not so much philosophers who were trying to just figure out who or what God was from the um, you know the philosophical from Philo or from from uh, 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 for one of the other Greek uh, philosophers or something like that, they were really rooted in what the text had to say as far as. 
the source of all things, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you know, the substance, uh, the makeup, the, um, uh, the, the shared nature of the being known as God, and, and how do three persons get factored in. Uh, it was really not so much philosophy as it was theology. Um, but philo- even philosophically speaking, it's going to have to include this idea of the monarchy view. And so the final statement from Dr. Branson, who himself is a Trinitarian, he says, to sum it up in two words, history matters. History matters. And if I click on that um, highlight uh, number 17, um, the um, uh, footnote number 17, you can see here this particular footnote is linked to Dr. Bo Branson's webpage at www.bobranson.com and he has an, uh, he has an article there on uh, monarchy there. So um, I highly recommend uh, you giving it a look, see, a look over and see what you think about that particular um, uh, perspective on how you explain Trinity. And that's going to do it for our look at uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Next week, we are not going to jump into these uh, passages or anything like that. Essentially, we're going to start getting prepared as I drop all the way to near the bottom of this particular commentary. We're going to start getting prepared for exploring the Shema Paper 3, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? And it says commentary forthcoming on my page right now, but if I have everything re- ready to go. I'll give it one more look over. I'll upload the final part three, and next week we'll jump into starting to look at the Holy Spirit in this particular study on issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to our um, liturgy, and um, we're going to do something a little different. Last two weeks, I've been reading English and Hebrew and Greek, and what I started out with is Genesis 1-1 in the English, and then I turned to John 1.1 in the English. And then last week I read Genesis 1.1 in the Hebrew. And then I turned to John 1.1 in the Greek. And this week, as I promised last week, now I'm going to do something really wild. I'm going to turn to Genesis 1.1 in the Greek. And then John 1.1 in the Hebrew. You guys understanding? You following me? We're reversing the languages here. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the first five verses in Genesis, and we're going to read the first five verses in John. And in Genesis, we have a Greek rendering of the original Hebrew, a Greek translation called the Septuagint, which was made available nearly 200 years before the New Testament itself, uh, near the time period that when Yeshua hit the scene in the, in, in the first century. We had a Greek translation that was already being circulated and used by Greek-speaking Jews called the Septuagint. And there are two versions that are out there, two main versions. There are some other minor versions. Um, uh, two manuscript families that we could choose from. I'm just going to choose from one of them. And so if you look at your screen right now, what I've got is, let me see, can I make that bigger? Can I get a little bigger? Uh, can I get, yeah, I think I, I safely I can get a little, make the the, um, the screen a little larger there, the font. Um, what, I, what I've got on this page is English up here on the top. I've got Hebrew kind of in the middle. And then I've got some Greek on left and right side of the page. And then, as you can see, I've got some English on the bottom there. I'm not going to read any of the English or any of the Hebrew. I'm only going to focus on the Greek, and we'll read verses 1 through 5 from the Greek. And so, uh, let me see, can I park it right there? Yeah, I think that'll work. All right, so you can see the English and the Hebrew, but I'm only going to read the Greek. Okay, you guys ready? This will be our liturgy for tonight. The Greek says, of verse 1, I'm not going to read the English. You can read it on your own. It's there on the page. But the Greek says, 
in arge epoiesen hafeas ton uran kaitein gain. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter uh, 1. I think I'll go like that. That way everybody can see. Verse 2 right there says, Hey, dege ein aoratas kai akataskuastas kai skatas epano tes abusu kai pnumatheu epaferato epano tu huditas. Verse 3 right there. Oops, didn't catch all of it. Well, verse 3 says, Kai apen hotheos genetheto fos. Kai agenato fos. And verse 4 says, Kai aden hotheos to fos hati kalan. Kai diakorsen hotheos ana meson tu fotos. Kai ana meson tu skatus. And then the final verse, verse 5, says, Kai ekalas in hotheos tofos, himeran kai ta skatas ekalas in nukta. Kai egenato espera, kai egenato proi, himera mia. And that'll do it for the Greek of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now let's use a web resource from sarshalom.us, which is a messianic congregation that is available online. And they've got a rendering of one of the Greek, uh, one of the Hebrew renderings from the original Greek. There are a number, probably about a half a dozen, semi-reliable versions of the Hebrew. Uh, some of them go back hundred, hundreds of years old, and some are more modern Hebrew. But this is a version that's kind of right in the middle, if I remember. I don't remember exactly which version. I'll tell you later on if I, if I remember. Maybe I'll jump down to the bottom of the page and find out. But this is a rendering of the Gr Hebrew in, of the Greek into Hebrew. So let's read this. John 1, verse 1. You can see there's English on the right side of the page, but I'm not going to read that. Um, I'm just going to read the, the Hebrew over on the uh, left side of the page there. So starting at verse 1, John 1, 1 in the Hebrew says, Breshit haya hadavar, vahadavar haya et ha Elohim, vohul hadavar haya Elohim. Verse 2 says, Hul haya merosh et ha Elohim. Verse 3 Kol hamaasim nihu al yado ve'en davar asher naasa mi baladaiv. Verse four says, "Bo nimza chayim v'ha chayim him or ha adam." And verse five says, "V'ha or zoreach b'choshek v'ha choshek lo yechilenu." And that'll do it for the Greek, I'm sorry, for the Hebrew of this particular rendering. Let me drop all the way down to the bottom of the page. And it says, as far as uh, Hebrew, this is, here we go, it says right here, the Hebrew source is the Salkinson Ginsburg Hebrew New Testament. That's the source for that particular Hebrew that I read there. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's watch the video for tonight. The video is longer. As I mentioned, it's 10 minutes long. It's going to be talking about Ephesians 2.15, I believe, where Paul's asking the question, where I'm asking the question, what does Paul mean in this particular verse in, in uh, Ephesians 2.15, abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances and things like that. So we'll watch the video, and when the video completes, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go.
Question Short Answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate's a Tor Ministries, of course. All right, here's our question. Question What did Paul mean in Ephesians 2.15 that abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two? Yeah, it's quite a lengthy question, and uh, we're going to take a few minutes to go through it step by step, and hopefully it'll make a little more sense than it has done in the past. So, if you read through eBible, you'll find that most standard Christian answers are concise and pinpoint accurate when commenting on this verse. Their answers usually forthrightly reinforce the central truth that Yeshua Jesus broke down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and created one new man in himself. Most Christian answers are going to catch that central theology about that Jesus is the one that broke down this wall. I want to elaborate on the antecedent theology as well as the first century historic and social implications of this separation, thus further uncovering the true meaning behind what it meant that Messiah, quote, abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, end quote. What exactly did Paul mean when he was trying to explain this concept of this law of commandments expressed in ordinances? Was it the Torah or was it something else? Let's keep reading. I think my answer might go a long way towards helping to better understand some of the challenges that Paul faced as a Messianic Jew who was sent by Yeshua to the Gentiles. Read Acts 22.21 as well as Ephesians 3.1. Paul was specifically commissioned by Yeshua to take this gospel to the rest of the world. Paul of Tarsus, the apostle to the Gentiles. Yay! Yeah, we're glad he sent. We're glad he went, right? All right, let's keep reading. So Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. Let me start with verse 14 and back up in my answer to build context. And then that way work towards verse 15. And we read this in our, our liturgy already. He himself is our peace, Yeshua. He, bro- he made us both one and he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's verse 14, 14 working our way towards 15. So if we look at verse 14, we've got basically the Christian opinion on one hand and we've got the messianic opinion on the other hand. So, what is the Christian opinion? It's commonly taught that the dividing wall of hostility, the quote-unquote, that's being broken down was the law of Moses. In other words, the law of Moses, the Torah. That's the Christian opinion. But, but, in my study and teaching of the Bible, I firmly maintain that the barrier being destroyed cannot possibly be the Torah. And that's a general messianic opinion. Messianic opinion. You're going to find these disagreement between these two camps these days. And why don't I think that? It's because the Torah never commanded a, quote, dividing wall of hostility, end quote, between Jews and Gentiles. That's my first way of interpreting this passage. There's no such dividing wall. Now, it is true that Israel was singled out by God to be a nation separated unto himself, reading Exodus 19.6, Amos 3.2, but the separation is the paradigm presented to demonstrate the basis for a unique covenant relationship in which the husband would love and cherish his bride with a unique love not intended for other women. Read Isaiah 54, 5. So the separation of Israel from the nations is for a specific teaching tool. Moreover, 
This separation did not forbid those from the nations, the Gentiles, from attaching themselves to Israel, to her God, and thus by covenant to Israel's Torah. Read Exodus 12.49, read Leviticus 24.22, read Numbers 15.29, where uh, those passages specifically mention the verbiage of the foreigner, the stranger who dwells among you, and things like that. In fact, Isaiah says the coastlands, the Gentiles, would be eagerly waiting for the servant of the Lord, which is Messiah, to bring this law to them. Read Isaiah 42, verse 4. It's a wonderful verse for those of you who are Gentiles to identify with. Jesus the Messiah was going to bring the Torah to the Gentiles, of course, along with salvation. Now, let's describe covenant Israel for a moment. We've seen this picture before in other YouTube videos of mine. We have covenant Jews plus covenant Gentiles. And what does that equal? Jew and Gentile coming together under one identifier called Israel is clearly shown in the Tanakh. Albeit, of course, maybe the Gentiles weren't showing up in mass like they did after Acts chapter 2, but nevertheless, covenant Israel has always been a mix of Jews and Gentiles. All right, so if the Torah cannot be the dividing wall, then what was it? Well, whatever it was, it created the enmity, the hostility, the Greek is echron, that was mentioned in both Ephesians 2.15 and Ephesians 2.16. And we read that in our liturgy. So we had this wall between Jews on the left side there and the Gentiles on the right. By the first century, Jews outnumbered Gentiles in national Israel. Of course, that makes sense. But more importantly, Jewish Israel actually forgot that Gentiles in Israel were to be counted as equal covenant members, and instead they imposed a man-made proselyte ceremony upon them if new prospects wished to join Israel. This was really one of the central um, sociological features that began to create problems in the first century. This was wrong. and Thumbs down. Yeah, that's right. We don't want to follow that bad theology. God commanded Israel to practice communal ritual purity. That's true. The practical outworking of the oral Torah and rabbinic laws of purity, however, raised a strong wall of jealousy, shared resentment, and separation between the Jews in Israel and the Gentiles outside of Israel, even if this was not the original intent. You guys understanding that, that this was the historical worldview that Jews and Gentiles had to deal with in that day. So what are our conclusions? The dividing wall of hostility in Ephesians 2.14 was the vile man-made social class caste system set in place by oral Torah and Jewish leaders seeking to keep a social and religious difference between Jews and Gentiles. Jewish religious pride and Gentile resentment of that pride fostered the shared social hostility. Right, it was on both sides. Jesus came to establish once and for all that Jews and Gentiles in him constituted a, quote, spiritual Israel within national Israel, end quote. Read Romans 9, 6 through 8, Romans 9, 23 and 24, and Romans 11, 1 through 7. The remnant of Israel, that's who they are. In the remnant, Jews and Gentile believers were equal. Something Paul states later in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, if you continue reading down through that passage. 
And this is vitally important that we catch this concept. We could draw these two circles like we're used to hearing me talk about. We got national Israel on the left side circle. We got the Gentile nations on the right side circle. And as we bring the two circles together and overlap them, we create this slice in the middle called remnant Israel, AKA the church. Make sense so far? That's the way to understand Paul's theology. Yes, that's the better way to understand the theology. So using the whole context of Ephesians 2 to bolster my argument, I would paraphrase Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 thusly. Here's my paraphrase, quote, For he himself is our peace, who has made both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah into fellow citizens with one another and both into members of Israel, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility created by the class caste system. Right? Following along so far? Let's continue with my paraphrase. By abolishing the laws of oral commandments found in man-made dogma, that he might create in himself one new redeemed humanity in place of the fractured and separated two, so making peace. Yes, Yeshua made peace by bringing a new way of understanding Jewish and Gentile relationships towards one another right and i hope that goes a better a longer way towards better understanding this passage here in ephesians be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others well that'll do it for this week's youtube video uh, my podcasts are available on itunes just search for me under the term ariel ha navi we'd love to have you uh, log in and listen to all of the podcasts that i got available to you but to all my faithful youtube subscribers out there like to um, uh, encourage you to watch my youtube videos make sure you're subscribing and clicking the setting that allows you to receive the updates when i upload new videos new content is added weekly in fact it's more than once a week it's multiple times a week okay i promise And that'll do it for the short little video. Let's dismiss in prayer. Ab, I bless your name and thank you for the study. I thank you for the students and I thank you for the interaction. I thank you most of all for your word and for the truths of what you have preserved for us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that it is the objective word of God that we can go back to time and time again. We can turn to your words because they are trustable, they are reliable, they are timeless. The truths contained therein are going to be that which is going to build our very lives by the power of the Holy Spirit being able to um, uh, help us to uh, put the words to practice and um, make them a uh, very reality in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be pleasing to you, to be holy, to live lives that are exemplary, um, uh, to be uh, sympathetic to one another, to continue to practice deference and to serve one another, modeling our lives the way the Master modeled his, where he served uh, those around him. And um, indeed, he, he poured out his very lifeblood on the cross in service to the people that uh, he loved. Help us to have um, that same type of love for one another. Thank you, Lord, that you are 
protecting us and raising us up and strengthening us, even in the midst of all the um, political confusion, amidst all of the um, um, the uncertainty in the world today with what's going on in, in other parts of the world, in Afghanistan. Uh, we pray for Christians there who are most certainly going to be experiencing persecution. We pray for uh, Americans that are there in Afghanistan and those people who are uh, whose lives are in danger now. We pray for other people who are innocent uh, being caught up in this uh, whole political mess of of the Taliban takeover and things, Lord. We we don't know all of all of the parameters of what's taking place and why, but we know that you are a God who's in control, and we look to you and trust you uh, to continue to orchestrate things and to help us to understand uh, the bigger picture. So uh, help us to understand what's going on with all the nonsense and the pandemic and the 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 the, um, the protests and the masks and the vi- the, the vaccines and and uh, just everything is just Lord. Uh, the world seems like it's going out of control, but we know it's not. It really isn't going out of control. It's not spinning out of control because you are in control and you are a God that knows this world that you've created and you've got a plan. And we have got to uh, uh, stay close to you if we want to make it and survive during these last days. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 